lost their faith. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods which the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's programming down the hall for them. And to the rest of you, thank you for being here uh, at the 11 o'clock service. We are glad that you are here. No one has better explained this parable in our modern day than a guy named Tim Keller. So if you want to dive deeper into today's content, there's a book that I will recommend to you. It's just called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Charles Dickens said of this parable that it is the finest short story that's ever been written. It's certainly the most famous of all of the parables of Jesus, and it's also the longest parable. And in this story, our focus kind of lands on one son in particular. But the story is not a story about only one son. It's a story about two sons. Here's verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. One wanders off, and one stays put. One son gets lost abroad, and the second son gets lost at home. And Jesus' intent for us is, is to find a radical message about who God is. There's an incredible statement hidden within this story 
that every other way that has ever been offered up for a person to connect with God, Jesus says, they're all wrong. And it's in this story. And the story tells us why. So let's understand the story first. First, it's a, it's a drama in two acts. We could divide it up that way. Act one is a younger brother who is lost. And act two is an elder brother who is also lost. And so let's go in that order. Here's act one, the younger brother who is lost. Scene one, the demand. Verse 12. The younger of the two sons comes to his father one day and demands his inheritance. Give me, Dad, what is rightfully mine. Now, in any good story, it's the first line that's the most important. It kind of sets the hook. And this one certainly would have grabbed everybody's attention. The first line would have actually been shocking to those who were listening to Jesus because it's premature of this younger son to ask this kind of thing of his father. An inheritance of a Jewish man in that day was divided according to the number of sons that he had, plus one part extra, okay? So if a man had three sons, then the estate was divided into four parts. If the the man had four sons, then the estate was divided into five parts. Now this man has two sons, so the estate would have been divided into Three parts. Well done. The less sleep, you, you know, hasn't affected you yet. You're, you're still well masked. Good job. Now, how many of you are the oldest in your family? Now, lots of hands. I am the oldest in my family, and all of us older siblings, we're going to like this next part. The reason for that extra portion was for the oldest son, the oldest child. It, it was expected that the oldest son would take the reins of the estate, that he would carry on the legacy of the family, and it was expected that he would need more resources than all of the other sons to do this. This is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 21. And so all the older children in the room, do we think that's a good plan? Yes, yes. And so if your mom and dad are talking about, you know, uh, estate, just point them to Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you're the oldest, say, hey, it's biblical. Here it is. Just saying. Now, it goes without saying that all this dividing and transferring of the estate wouldn't happen until the patriarch of the family actually passed away. Until that time, a son didn't have any right whatsoever to claim his inheritance, and to do so would have been disrespectful, not to mention hurtful, and guess what? It still is. It's still that way. But look what he says. Not just give me my inheritance, but give me what I know is coming to me later. What does that mean? In other words, give me my inheritance now. I know it's coming later, but give it to me now. This insubordinate younger son is declaring that he can no longer stand to be inside his father's house. And his request is essentially, Dad, I wish you would drop dead. That's what he's saying. And what a gut punch to the father. We could translate it this way, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. My presence here, Dad, is just a means to an end. I want to get what's mine, and then I'm out. And I'm tired of waiting until you die. So can we do this now? Instantly, we wonder, what will the father do? Now, that's the opening line. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. 
If you were sitting listening to Jesus, you knew the action that the father needed to take. Right away, any self-respecting head of a Jewish family, they knew what would happen. This patriarch would drive this rude little whiny boy out with force. There would be verbal rejection, maybe physical rejection if necessary. And what happens? Another staggering turn. The father does not do that. It says he divided his property between them. That's not what a father is supposed to do. Jesus' first hearers would have been astounded at the request of the son, but now they are offended at the response of the father. Because that's not what you do. When we read this line, he divides his property between them, the word property is the word bios. Uh, We get the word biology and biography from the word bios. It means life. And so we could read it this way, that he divided his life. And that was true. He divided his estate, this land. His estate is his life. His wealth is in the property and in the land. His, his identity is in his estate, in his land. His standing in the community is tied up in the land and the wealth that he has. He belongs to the land that he owns. It is his life. And so when the son requests, God, give me what's mine. The son is asking his dad to tear his life apart. Drop dead, dad, isn't far from what will really have to happen here because his identity will will be crushed as his life is torn apart and pieced away and given up. Jesus' hearers know that a patriarch in this day will not endure that kind of insult. And so they know what's going to happen next in the story, but it doesn't. This father willingly divides his life for his son. I want you to think about that. Put yourself in the shoes of the father. He's enduring the worst thing that we can face. Somebody that we love that does not return our love. This man loves his son, but his son is telling him, drop dead, dad. And his love is a rejected love. And in the face of a rejected love, what do we do? I'll tell you what we do. Often we retaliate. We turn on the person who has rejected us and we just reject them in turn. Oh, oh, really? Okay, I can do that. And maybe we, we do everything we, we can to distance ourselves so that we won't get hurt so much at the loss of the love. We label them as murderers of love and we, we reject them. But that's not this father. He keeps loving his son. He divides his life. He gives the son the rejection that he's demanded. Here's scene two, the destruction. This son gets his inheritance, and he instantly says, now I can do whatever I want to do. And he does. He goes off somewhere that's not home. Doesn't matter where, just not home, right? He squanders his property. The word for property is not the word for life like it was before. This, this time it just means resources. And so he squanders his resources. The word means to scatter. He squanders. Just like our first parable a couple of weeks ago where uh, the sower was scattering seed all over the field. Here the son scatters all of his money in this land that he's in. He broadcasts it all over. He has as much fun as his money would buy, just handing it out all over the place as if his money would never run out, and then it did. 
now he's in need. And he becomes so desperate that he hires himself. Did you notice that? How do you pull that off? How do you hire yourself? He wasn't given work. The line literally means that he attached himself to some farmer and wore this farmer down until the farmer finally gave him something to do. And the job that he's finally given is this, feed the hogs. So here's a very kosher Jewish young man having to take care of pigs that are defiling man is also destitute. As he's feeding the pigs, he finds himself longing to eat the pods that he was feeding his pigs. And we could say it this way, he was envious of the pigs to suffer because he did not have his own. And verse 16 tells us why, because no one gave him anything. And there would hardly be a picture of deeper depravity for a Jew than this. Next scene, the decision. Verse 17 says that this younger son came to himself. It means that he was slapped back into reality. He kind of wakes up to what's going on, and he admits to himself, finally, I've been stupid. I've made a mess of my life. And in that moment of sanity, he wisely decides to go home, but he knows that he's burned all of the bridges with his father. And so he makes this plan. It's a twofold plan. He says, number one, I will go and confess to my father that I have sinned. And number two, he said, I'll ask to be a hired man. And the second part of the speech, the second part of the the, the plan is interesting because Treat me as a hired hand is not here asking to be a slave. That's not what he's asking. A slave lived on the estate. A a slave worked on the estate. A a hired hand is different. A hired hand is a guy with a special skill or a craft who, who had gone through an apprenticeship to learn that craft. A hired hand was somebody who lived in town and got up every morning and packed a lunch, and went to the estate, and worked, and then went back home, and so he earned a wage. And so the son is saying, Dad, make me a hired hand so that I can earn a wage. Now, why would that be the son's plan? What's he doing? There's a Buddhist version of this story. And in the Buddhist version, the the son that goes off and and sins and, and is in, in error, he comes back. And in the Buddhist story, that son is required to work off the penalty for his past misdeeds through years and years of servitude to his father. This son has heard that story. Also this, the, ra- the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that if a person violated the customs of their family or their community, then it wasn't just enough to apologize and say you're sorry. There also had to be restitution. The instruction from the rabbis was to repay your debt. That's the only way back into the good graces of the people or your family or your your community. And that's what the son is trying to do. Father, let me be an apprentice 
to one of your hired men, and that way I can earn a wage, and I can begin to pay you back for all that I took from you. I know I can't be your son anymore. I know I can't be a part of the family. I've disinherited myself, but this way I can at least pay you back. And it's not a bad plan. It's well-reasoned. It's well-thought-out. And, and as he brings back home, you, you can just see him rehearsing this speech, this plan, over and over until he gets the words just right so that in the moment that he encounters his father again, truth Last scene of Act 1 in the creek. The son is just about home. And the father sees him from far off. We read that he has compassion for his son. So much compassion that it moves him to run out to meet his son. Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Running was for women. Running was for children. Running was not for owners of estates. In order to run, you have to pick up your robes and you have to bare your legs and you have to embrace indignity. And you just don't do that if you're this father. But he does. A lot of commentators say here that he's really acting like a mother. He's really acting like mom. Not because he runs, but when he gets to his son, there's a kiss. There's an embrace. It's all kissy-feely, right? That's, it's a ma- emotional abandonment. That's more mom's space than dad's, isn't it? But this father has no self-consciousness. He ignores the tattered clothes. He ignores the unshaven face. He ignores the smell. And he throws himself on his son's neck, and he gives him many kisses. That's what the text says, because it's all about his son. And immediately, the son launches into his apology that he has rehearsed. You can imagine him kind of grabbing his laptop and uh, pulling up the PowerPoint presentation for for the plan, right, for the restitution plan. But he never gets there. He never gets that far. The father cuts him off right after, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts. He calls for a robe. Bring a robe. A robe was a customary thing to give to an honored guest. But this wasn't just any robe. What the text says, it was the best robe. The best robe would have surely been the robe of the father himself. He says, put a ring on his hand. A ring was symbolic of sonship. He said, put shoes on his feet. The slaves on the estate went barefoot, but not so. It was a symbol of his freedom. And all of these things, the robe and the ring and the shoes, they're they're more than just cleaning the son up and making him comfortable. They are a collective statement about this sinful son from the father. He says this, I'm not waiting for you to clean up. I'm not waiting for you to take a bath. I'm certainly not waiting for you to prove yourself or to pay me back somehow. This robe says I've covered you. This ring says that I've given you back your authority and your position. This shoe says that there's no probation here at all. You are my son and you are a part of this family. You were dead. But now you are alive again. That's resurrection language. You were lost, but you are found. And that leads to fellowship. And they start a conversation. End of Act 1. Time for popcorn. 
And I'm sure at the concession stand at this show, they're also selling Savage Cat, okay? So, that's pretty good for me. Act two starts this way, with a dance. There are people inside a big party tent. That's what I envision. And the DJ is spinning and the bass is thumping and everybody's feasting and everybody's dancing. And at the very same time, the other son, you remember, there are two, the two sons. The elder brother is the eldest son, and he's out in the field, and he's working, he's working. He hears the disco music, and he comes in to see what all the fuss is about, because there's clearly a surprise party for somebody. Maybe it's for him, finally. The servant tells him about all that happened in Act 1, and he's furious about it. He refuses then to be a part of the celebration. And his father hears about this, and his father goes out to his son. The son realizes the party isn't for him, and he's probably upset about that. But more particularly, he's angry about the cost of the party. He singles out the calf. He says, Dad, you never even gave me a goat. And you give him a calf? Here's the modern translation. You never even gave me a bike, and you've given him a car? That's it. The background helps to see why the older brother takes offense here. See, in this day, most uh, meals almost never included meat. The only time you would ever have meat was at a party. And the most expensive delicacy that you could offer up at any party was a fatted calf. And the whole village would have been there. There's no way that they go to this kind of expense and pay for all of this just for a little private family party. Everybody around would have been invited. There would have been a big tent. There would have been a big buffet line, the DJ, the dance floor, the whole shebang. And all of that doesn't happen for free. Someone has to Venmo somebody else for a party to happen. Right? So you can see the older brother's logic. How dare you, Dad? How dare you use our wealth like this? And he purposely insults his father. It's hard to see in the English, but there's no address of his father. He just says in verse 29, look, look. What's he doing? He's verbally pinning his father up against the wall and saying, look here, you. Right? He's asserting his dominance over his father. Just like the younger son's request earlier was an insult to his father, so too this older son's lack of respect is just as insulting to his father. And also, I want you to see the tone here. What does he call his brother? Not my brother. He calls him this son of yours. Moms and dads in the room, you know what we're doing here? This son of yours. And the slight he makes of his brother is also telling. He claims his brother hired prostitutes. Do a quick scan of Act 1 that we just went through. See if you ever see a mention of prostitutes. We don't know about them until the brother tells us that his wild living included prostitutes. He's the only one that ever says the word. And so here's a son who's publicly humiliated his father by not going into the party. And then he's publicly humiliated his father again by refusing to call him father. And then he makes sure that his brother is seen as a lower class citizen in everybody else's eyes. 
surely, oh, what will the Father do? Surely he won't stand for this. He responds with a very tender word. Father Jeff, thank you. You could translate it this way, my child. He goes on, he basically says, I still want you in the future. Every other father would have disowned you by now for what you have just done, but I still want you in because it's right for us to celebrate that your brother was dead but is now alive, that he was lost but he's now found. We have to dance. Would you come and dance with us? watch those movies that just go black at the end without answering all of your questions? I think, I think Jesus, uh, we learned that from Jesus because that's what he does here. That's this story. It's a little frustrating. Like, we have all these questions. What does the older brother end up doing? We don't know. What, what happens to the family? Do they get along in the end? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. And so what is Jesus doing here? What's he trying to tell us even in, as he leaves all of these questions for us unanswered and there's there's lots that we could go into i just want to go into one thing today and it's this he's telling us about salvation you and i in this room we're we're all trying to control our world we're trying to control other people to get what we want the younger brother is trying to control his life and his father by rebelling that's that's how he tries to save himself the older brother tries to control his life and his father by being reliable, or we could say it this way, religious. And that's how he tries to save himself. And in the room, we're the same. We try one path or the other. We either rebel or we get really religious. We try to save ourselves, and either path won't work. Jesus tells us what will. And it's here in this story. That salvation is found, number one, in the love of the Father. Did you notice in the story that the Father goes out to both sons? Actions speak volumes. Tells us that we have a God who moves towards us. And that in this day when Jesus tells the story is an earth-shattering revelation about God. Before this, people understood that the only way to a relationship with God was to clean yourself up and to scratch and claw and climb your way to God. But that's not the God that Jesus gives us here. He gives us a God that goes out, who reaches out to us in love just as we are in order to save us and to bring us home. Here's what he tells us about salvation. Salvation is found in the sin that we repent of. Um, I want to get this line right, so, so it's intentional. You need to learn to repent for more than your sin. You need to learn to repent for more than your sin. What do I mean when I say that? We look at the younger son and we think, oh, oh okay, that's, that's how we become a Christian. That's how we become saved. We, we get right with God by by repenting of our lips, right? We, we get a speech together like the younger brother, and we go to, to God and we say, I have sinned. 
I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore because my list is so great. Now, is that repentance? Absolutely, yes, and it's absolutely needed. That's where we start. But take a look at the older brother. What you'll see is that he doesn't have a huge list of wrongs. What does the, what does the text say? He's always obeyed. He's always been good. He's served his father faithfully. He even says, I have never disobeyed a single command of yours. And the father never contradicts him on that point. So he doesn't have a list to repent of. Of course, he's not perfect. He's just like everybody else. But he is exceptionally religious. There's not a lot of faults. But even so, he's a lost son. Just as lost as his brother with the long list. So here's the question. How does a faithful, obedient, religious person get lost in the first place, let alone get saved? This story tells us that a Christian is somebody who has learned to repent of sin but who has also learned to repent for the reasons and the motivations that drove them to do all of the right things that they're doing in the first place. Even the right things that we do can be an attempt to avoid God or an attempt to control Him. We can be our own Savior under the banner of all of the good that we've done. God, look at what I'm doing. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church. You owe me can save ourselves. And when we realize that even our good that we do won't save us, and we begin to repent of why we do all of the good that we do, everything changes. Here's the other thing we need to know about heaven. What it costs to bring us there. The older brother obeys God just to get his stuff. But a Christian obeys God just to get God. There's a big difference. And so, okay, what if I'm pretty proud of my Sunday school record and I've got a lot of stars, you know, on the wall? How do I make the leap? How do I love God not to just get his stuff, but to get him? And the best agent of change here is to see what it costs for God to welcome you home. In the story, the father won't let his younger son even think of paying him back. And the father offers up this added calf for the party. And, and we think, oh, okay, well, the calf was kind of already theirs, you know. It, it's, it's in-house, and so it really doesn't cost anybody anything. But that's not true. Verse 31 says that the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. And that was literally true. Why? Because the estate had already been divided up. And the younger, younger son has already wasted all of his share. He's already spent it. And so all of the estate that is left actually belongs to the elder brother. Every robe, every ring, and every cow, they all belong to the older brother. Brother, So the only way for the younger son to be brought back into the family was for the older brother to pay for him. Every bit of the party was coming out of the older brother's share of the estate. Somebody has to pay. And when the older brother realizes that it's him that has to pay, he's furious about it. 
One of the reasons that Jesus tells this story is that he's, he's sitting in front of tax collectors and sinners on one hand and Pharisees and scribes on the other. And this older brother in the story, what Jesus is doing is he's holding a mirror up to those Pharisees and religious leaders to show them what they look like. This is who you really are. You're pointing out everyone else's sin and you're pointing to your own goodness as if that is enough to save you. You are the selfish older brother that can't stand to see a younger prodigal brother come home. And the story, it invites us to imagine, because it ends so abruptly, It invites us to imagine what would a true elder brother have looked like? What would a true elder brother have done? What if Jesus would have made the older brother the hero of the story? How would that storyline go? It would go something like this. The true older brother would see his father in agony as his younger son rebelled and went to a far country. And that true older brother would have stepped up to his father and he would have said something like this. Dad, I'm going out to find my brother who's lost. I'm going to go get him. And when I find him, if he's ruined himself and if he's spent all of his money, then I will do what it takes to bring him home. Even if it costs me everything at my own expense, I will give whatever it takes to bring him home. Dad, don't you worry because I've got this. That would have been the true elder brother. And Jesus doesn't put that true elder brother in the story because that true elder brother is telling the story. It's him. Jesus is that true elder brother. Jesus didn't just go out of of the country into the next town to find us. Jesus went out of heaven and came to earth to find us. And when he stumbled upon us, lost and penniless in the mud of our own choices, he paid the cost to bring us back into God's family. And that cost was to give his life. He was stripped naked so that we could be given a robe of righteousness that we never deserved in the first place. He wore a ring of crowns, uh, of thorns, so that we could be given a ring that says that we belong to God's family. He was sacrificed like the calf so that we could go into the celebration of heaven for all time. And it was on this cross where Jesus was paying with his life, that Jesus prayed to God, and he said this, my God, my God. It's the only time out of all the times that we have recorded that Jesus does not call God Father. He does not address God as Father. He just says, my God, my God. And why doesn't he do that? Because in that moment, he was not a son. He was rejected. God turned his back. Jesus was treated is not a son. So that you and I could be sons. On the cross, he paid the debt that deep down we know we owe. And that's what we have to see. How much it costs to bring us home. Jesus is the true elder brother that gave everything so that you could be a son of God. So in the room today, there are two people. Maybe maybe you're a younger brother type here today. Maybe somewhere along the line you tried the God thing and for whatever reason it didn't go well and, and you ended up shaking your fist at God saying, drop dead God. And you took all of the goodness that he's ever given you and you ran off to live the way you wanted to live. Maybe that's you. 
but I challenge you to this. Would you just keep coming back? Would you just keep coming back? Would you just keep reconsidering who this God is? Because maybe the God that you shook your fist at isn't at all the God that Jesus is describing here. Would you entertain that maybe God isn't who you thought he was? That instead, he's a loving father who desperately wants you to come home. So younger brothers, would you come to your senses and come home? Because the life you're after is only found in the father's house. Just come home. The parable really, at the end of the day, is these two older brothers. And there are probably more of us in the room than not. We can relate to the older brother. We're, we're mad at people who have hurt us. There are classes of people we look down on because of what they represent to us. We think along the way, God, I'm the good one here. God, God, hey, I'm doing all this stuff for you. Bible study, church, praying, reading my Bible, trying to tell people about you. I'm doing all this. So why is my life looking like this, God? You owe me. I see all of these other people out there, and they're living any way they please, and they seem to be happy. And here I am, slaving away from you, and I'm miserable. If you're an older brother today, here's your challenge. Would you, would you dig into the reason that you're doing all of the good things that you do? Is it to get God's stuff? Or is it to get God himself? Maybe the thing standing between you and God today isn't your sin so much as it is the moral record that you've trying, you're trying to build in order to impress God. It won't get you home like you think it will. The only way we stop being elder brothers is by understanding what the true elder brother did for us. His obedience, his sacrifice saved us, not our own. And so older brothers today, would you just come to the party? Come on in. The price has been paid. You lose nothing by coming in. It's time to dance. Would you do that today? Lay your deadly good doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand alone in him, gloriously complete. Father God, would you show us today the gospel that we need to see clearly? Would you show us the gospel that welcomes the sinner home? Would you show us the gospel that draws the self-righteous, the legalist into the party? God, I pray we will never forget this story from Jesus because it holds the power to change our lives. I thank you for being the perfect father that we need. You weren't the father that we expected. The prodigal God who loves us without end. Thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for inviting us to dance. And it's in the name of Jesus, the true elder brother who paid for us all, we pray.